0: Before we start today's podcast, we wanted to name the moment that this podcast is being released in. So many in our unspooled community, because of the color of their skin, have the privilege to drop in and out of discomfort, fear, and exhaustion of this week. Some in our community, because of the color of their skin, must live with the discomfort and fear and exhaustion every single day. We stand in solidarity with those protesting the continued State violence by police that has taken the lives of Oscar Grant, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Kendra James, Sean Bell, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Alton Sterling, Laquan McDonald, Freddie Gray, Walter Scott, Fernando Castile, Sandra Bland, Ahmaud Aubrey, Sean Reed, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and the countless others and their families who are left with an unimaginable grief. To those protesting right now, we thank you.
3: This is a moment to take action. If this country is serious about wanting a better future, we need to be reflecting on our past to do better tomorrow. For some of us, that means having tough conversations with our family and our friends. If you're looking for a movie to start that conversation, or just because we can all always keep learning, here's a few titles. They are all streaming. Fruitvale Station, When They See Us, Just Mercy, The Hate You Give, and there's also a few great documentaries, The 13th, The Murder of Fred Hampton, and the fabulous James Baldwin documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. And, of course, there is Do the Right Thing, which continues to be powerful and relevant. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who keeps thinking of what Spike Lee said on this show, that the murder of Radio Raheem matters more than the burning of Sal's Pizzeria.
0: There are so many places to donate at this time. I'm sure you've seen lists of names and organizations and GoFundMe pages and bailout uh, funds. And I just wanna take a moment to talk about one organization that means a lot to me, which is Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter are boots on the ground making active change in communities. Um, I can speak to Black Lives Matter LA and say that they were behind a giant movement, uh, the People's Budget of LA that defunded uh, big government organizations like the police and put that money into education and homeless outreach and into building up our community. It's something that is incredibly necessary. And they're doing this work all over and they need your help and support, whether that's a monthly donation, maybe a $5 or $10, or I don't know how much money you have or don't have. I'm just saying that whatever you can spare, um, it's worth it. It's a cup of coffee a month. If you do $5 a month, um, And I just think that their organization is absolutely impeccable and have been fighting for this change and been at the forefront of this change and really refuse to take no for an answer. And they just keep on making so much progress. So visit their site. And if you can't donate, then amplify their message.
3: And another really good place to be donating, again, however much you can, either today as a recurring monthly donation is the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. I think that David Lund sums up every, every bit of the great work that they do. Again, that's the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund.
0: And Amy and I want to make sure that you know that we uh, really want to hold ourselves accountable and make sure that we raise up the voices of black artists. And I think that will be easier to do once we get off of this AFI list. And uh, we are excited to do so. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And, uh, and together, we can make real change.
3: The year is 1982, but if you were in the year of the movie, which is 2019, and you saw a podcast, would you help it? Would you turn it upside down? Would you hit play?
5: I'd hit play. I'd hit play. I've hit play all day!
3: The movie, Blade Runner. everybody, and welcome to Unspooled.
0: Unspooled.
3: I am Amy Nicholson.
0: And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where every week we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time list, 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say, do they hold up, and how have they influenced the films that we watch today. Today, we'll be talking about Blade Runner. But before we get into that, we're going to revisit last week's episode, which was A Streetcar Named Desire. Um, so many great comments about this movie. Uh, it really got people talking Amy,
3: Yeah. One of my favorite comments came from Ed Dacuzan. He says, I watched it with a roommate back in 2000 who was not a huge movie fan. Her main takeaway was quote, I was not prepared for how hot Marlon Brando would be. And he said, you know what? I have to agree.
0: <laughs> Look, I agree. Marlon Brando does it for me. Uh, especially in this movie. I would never have thought that. Um, But not everyone loved it. Marina Carlson wrote, okay, here was my problem. Despite the three incredible performances, this film felt nothing more than a film stage play. And it's an unbelievable play. But for me, part of what makes a film great is how the director interprets the story and brings the audiences into it. And all that amazing work that I can't describe because I'm not a director, but I think if if I'd gone to see this play, I would have had just about the same experience as if I had watching the movie. Now, that's, for me, something I totally disagree with. I think the use of perspective, getting really in on people's faces, I think we saw something much more internal than the play would allow us to feel, especially we talked about how the sets got smaller and smaller. I I think that sense of claustrophobia was really palpable in the film. I mean, it's simply shot, but I don't think it's uh, not uh, directed well.
3: Yeah, Ian Stewart seemed to be wrestling with the same thing. You know, he said I'm torn between this movie and on the waterfront. He actually thinks that Streetcar is filmed more interestingly than on the waterfront and that he loves the play between the two acting styles, you know, thinking of Vivian Lee and Marlon Brando. But that he prefers the story of on the waterfront more and that he probably watches the scene in the car, the oh, I'm not a con- I-, I could have been a contender scene once a month. He's going to vote yes on Streetcar being on the AFI list though just because it's such a close tie.
0: That's interesting. You know, on the waterfront is fantastic, and I think there are a lot of similarities. But totally, this is a different movie. You know, streetcar is kind of wrestling with things that I feel like are much bigger. You know, uh, not as far as thematically, but the way that they're presented. We we talked about it. Uh, you know, being incredibly performative. It, it it's out of our reality to a certain degree, um, which I I like and I appreciate on the AFI list that we have something. That can, uh, not be as grounded as the rest of the films that we watch. I think AFI list has a lot of grounded films, and this one, you know, feels like a a very unique voice.
3: Well, I mean, according to Sally Sally Bo Bally at Zarsali, at least we know that Streetcar gets the cat vote because the clip that I played several times of Marlon Brando meowing over and over and over again it got her cat's attention. So. <laughs> To that, I say, if cats are in the AFI list. Oh, God, what if cats were in the AFI list? Do you think cats would let American Tail be on the AFI list?
0: Look, if cats had their way, I mean, we'd probably get uh, no dog films on this list. We'd probably get a lot of films about laser pointers, maybe like the... Thin Red Dot, that, you know, that cat, that feline Errol Morris film, uh, you know, it would be a very contested (laughs) list, Amy.
3: I think cats would like the the dog's purpose movies, the ones where the dog just dies over and over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: I always remember that moment in the movie Scrooge with Bill Murray where Robert Mitchum is telling them that they need to appeal to cats. That's why they want mice on TV for the Christmas Carol reimagining. Um, and I think about that all the time because I actually was in a show for cats, quote unquote, by cats, um, paid for by Meow Mix. Um, and it was just really catering to people who love cats and the cats that watch TV when their owners aren't home. It was a crazy long story. You can watch a clip of it on Online, it's called Meow TV. Uh, uh, I'm straight
3: up Googling that because that was a sentence I never thought I'd hear you say, that you were in a TV show for cats, by cats, sponsored by Meow
0: Mix. I'll send you the Dropbox <laughs> link. I'll send it to you. Wow.
3: Uh, well, um, you reveal multitudes uh, every day. Um, <laughs> a few people, Shannon Horwat and Lance at Lance D. Lawrence, uh, gave a shout out to the Gillian Anderson version of Streetcar Named Desire that was actually streaming for free last week. Um it was a, It's done by the National Theater from London. They have really said that the modern staging of it, the Blanche DuBois, is more of, I don't know, a sorority girl-ish dress in the modern era, I would say, than this one. Um, that it really opened it up for them and that they really enjoyed that version. I actually watched that version, too, and um, the Ben Foster version of Stanley Kowalski is radically different. It's interesting to see an actor... Do a completely different spin on it by making Stanley Kowalski just like this angry, angry, hostile nerd who wears cargo pants and polo shirts. It was was fascinating to see the text get pulled in that direction.
0: You know, uh, people also responded online. We don't have it here, but who would make a good uh, Stanley Kowalski? And someone said Tom Hardy, and that was one that really registered to me. I feel like he has that sex appeal and that um, intimidating presence. It's an interesting choice, I thought. Um, a little bit more than I think Ben Foster and I love Ben Foster, but I feel like there needs to be this kind of middle ground. I think when you, we talk about Marlon Brando, there is a sex appeal. There is this underlying sexual nature to it, not just dominant, but sexual.
3: I mean, I will say I am heartbroken that. We have been given as audiences the gift of Tom Hardy, and Tom Hardy keeps choosing to wear masks in all of his movies. It's like, Tom (laughs) Hardy, we don't get that many of you. Give us the full Tom Hardy. But on that (laughs) level, you know, I asked um, on the episode and I asked on Twitter, like, can you remember a time in our life where we would have seen an actor make a debut like Brando did in this film? Where you're just like, who is that? That is a movie star. I couldn't think of anything I was facing, and people reminded me of several really great ones. You know, Brad Pitt and Thelma and Louise, for sure. Mm-hmm. Cameron Diaz, when she shows up in the mask. Oh, my God. And uh, one of my personal favorite ones of all time, Margot Robbie and the Wolf of Wall Street, where you're just like, who is that? And you see the star quality written all over them.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm sure there's even more of them out there. But it is that amazing moment from who are they to they are everywhere at all times. Amy, last week, we asked people to um, help us out with a little bit of acting. Uh, There's an amazing performance at the end of Blade Runner, a film we're talking about today, where Rucker Hauer's character gives a beautiful speech. Uh, People called in, and we did our best to piece together that speech based on multiple people giving their dramatic interpretations of uh, Rucker Hauer's replicant talking about the future and the life that he has lived. let take a listen. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe.
6: Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I've watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser gate. All those moments will be lost in time.
0: Like tears in rain. Time to die. Not bad, right? That was
3: pretty good. That was amazing. That was amazing. Everybody gets a dove. You get a dove. You get a dove. You get a dove.
0: Well, as we're giving out doves, let's get into this episode and get ready to unspool it.
3: You know, Paul, every time you say that, I think you must be a replicant.
0: I am. The year is 1982. The first issue of USA Today is published. Elvis Presley's Graceland opens to the public. Screen legend Princess Grace Kelly of Monaco perishes in a car crash. Jennifer and Jessica tie for most popular baby girl name. Time Magazine's Man of the Year is The Computer. And the popular films are E.T., Sophie's Choice, Tootsie, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and today's film, Blade Runner. It ranks 97 on the 2007 AFI Top 100 list and is nowhere to be seen on the previous list in 1997. What the heck? Uh, Let's take a listen to a little clip from Blade Runner.
7: The light that burns twice as bright burns half as long. And you have burned so very, very brightly, Roy. Look at you. You're the prodigal son. You're quite a prize. I've done questionable things. Also extraordinary things. Revel in your time.
0: Nothing the god of biomechanics wouldn't let you in heaven. Amy, Blade Runner. Who's in it? What's it about?
3: Blade Runner. It is an adaptation of the Philip K. Dick story, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And the Blade Runner of the title that it has is about the man who is hired to track down replicants who have landed on Earth, where they are very much not allowed to be. The man in question is undoing it under duress. His name is Rick Deckard. He is played by Harrison Ford, and he is chasing four replicants, um, two of whom, really primo, get a ton of screen time. That's Rucker Hauer and Daryl Hannah, young 19-year-old, very flexible Daryl Hannah. Uh, meanwhile, he is uh, confused about his emotions. If he has emotions, are emotions possible? Are emotions possible with the girl that he loves? Does she have love? He's confused about all of his feelings of his relationship with Sean Young as the replicant Rachel, and it's directed by Ridley Scott. This is one of his big follow-ups after Alien, and this movie, as you said, comes out in 1982 as kind of a, can we get some of that Star Wars giant summer blockbuster magic to happen again? And the answer was, no, this movie did not do that great when it came out, despite starting with a Star Wars crawl explaining this whole world of replicants.
0: I love that you mentioned Star Wars because for me, for years, I never really got Blade Runner. And I think I was really holding it to an expectation of it being like Star Wars. As a kid, I remember going, oh, okay, it's like in the future and it's Harrison Ford. It's going to be fun. And I just never really got it. It wasn't until many years later that I really started to appreciate Blade Runner. And I feel like in the last two or three years, I've really come to love Blade Runner, but it's a movie that, for at least for me, really eluded me because I was looking for it to be something other than what it was.
3: Yeah, I mean, that would make a ton of sense because they're produced by the same person. They're both produced by Alan Ladd Jr., who was so trying to recapture that Star Wars magic, really hoping that this expensive as hell film would be a big as hell hit, that he even tried to jinx it with numerology. He, he produced Star Wars. He produced Alien. Both of those movies opened up on May 25th. So he opened up Blade Runner on June 25th. He thought, 25th. If I keep this 25th thing going, wow. it's going to work out. So yeah, like I, I think I think exactly what you're saying is a lot of the process of Blade Runner is, is people taking a long time to see Blade Runner on its own terms, a process that was still going on in the 90s because we were still getting different cuts all the way up until the last 10 years. And so people have been acclimating and re-acclimating, and and I guess all the the different cuts about it have made it seem like we need to fight for this movie. I think it showing up on the list at all in 2007 has a bit of underdog quality to it. Like, we have done you wrong, Blade Runner. We must fix this.
0: It's interesting because the movie has such a clean and clear voice, and it was completely wrecked by the studio. This is a movie that fought back and won, and I think we're seeing that right now in popular culture with the Snyder cut, you know, of Justice League, like fans know there's something more out there and they got to get oh at my it. God. And
3: Paul, are you saying that in 2047, we're going to have the Snyder cut on the next iteration of the AFI list? Is that I the Blade Runner not. future I we're living not.
0: in? No, but I do believe that, you know, when you have a passionate fan base who believes that the filmmaker didn't get to execute their vision, they will fight to see that vision. Now, I don't know if Justice League will be any good, but clearly Zack Snyder wants people to see his version of it, and the fans want people to see his version of it. I personally have no investment in that film. But to draw it to Blade Runner, this has been this battle. When the movie comes out, it's a compromised version of Ridley Scott's vision. And and the biggest, uh, I think, demarcation of that is the voiceover narration that was in the original theatrical cut. That was something that Harrison Ford and Ridley Scott did not want to do in this movie at all. Harrison Ford kind of read it in a very lackluster way, and this movie comes out, and even with that voiceover, it kind of grains this cult of personality, but people knew there was more out there.
3: That's why It's almost like um, one of my friends, uh, actually not a friend at all, one of the people that I stalk on Instagram bought an old house and she stripped all the paint off, and suddenly it was this beautiful house. It's—I think that's what we almost did with the narration of this movie. Like, oh, yeah. you're like, "There's something wrong here. Can we get back to the basics? What if we pull all this stuff out?" That just happened to in like a city capital building somewhere. That during quarantine they pulled off the linoleum floor of the courthouse, and suddenly there are all these beautiful tiles underneath it. And they're like, "Oh my god!" I mean, that's—it's oh, wow. like they've been re- unrenovating Blade Runner. But you're right, like. I oh, I actually even pulled a clip of of the narration that just layered on this film like cheap vinyl siding because when you hear it you hear you hear the absolute oh gosh I mean it's hard to even when I hear when I hear uh, Harrison Ford do this narration I just get this image in my head of like you put a cat on a leash and you're like come on cat come with me let's take a walk down the sidewalk and Harrison Ford is just the actor who will not do whatever you whatever if he doesn't believe in it he will not do it he will he will have the leash on He will show up in the Blade Runner sequel, but he's not going to wear a costume. Like, he just never does what he doesn't want to do in things, and they just let him get (laughs) away with it. But yeah, listen to how much he's not putting his heart into this. The scene that he's narrating is going over, to me, one of the best scenes in the entire film, which is the death of Roy at the very end. I don't think this is a spoiler. This movie is very, very old. But listen to how he just kills this beautiful moment with this awful narration.
6: I don't know why he saved my life. Maybe in those last moments, he loved life more than he ever had before. Not just his life. Anybody's life. My life. All he'd wanted were the same answers the rest of us want. Where do I come from? Where am I going? How long have I got? All I could do was sit there and watch him die.
0: Whoa, that is... (laughs) I. It's even worse than I remember it. Holy shit, that's amazing. It is really, it looks like he's angry. You could hear the anger in his voice. Yeah, he's not,
3: a, I guess he's not a good actor when it comes to hiding. how I much mean, he doesn't want to do something. That's not even a cat on a leash. That's like Garfield on a leash. That is Garfield being like, I hate lasagna. I hate this voiceover. You cannot make me make this movie better with voiceover. Fuck you.
0: Um, You know what, Amy, I just want to show the difference in Harrison Ford when he is committed to something. Um, This is Harrison Ford uh, doing voiceover where you really feel it from him.
6: Luke Skywalker and Han Solo rescued the princess, destroyed the Death Star, but their story didn't end there. Now, the creators of the biggest smash hit of all time bring you the next episode in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. The continuing story of our band of heroes... Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, C-3PO, R2-D2, and Chewbacca. And introducing Lando
0: Calrissian. See, so he can do good voiceover when he wants to. I, when I heard that clip of him doing that, I was like, wow, I've never heard Harrison Ford that animated in my life.
3: <laughs> I mean, I have to say, I respect a recalcitrant movie star. I don't know why that is. And now I'm starting to wonder if I should question my own hypocrisy because I have little patience for recalcitrant, weirdo, stubborn movie directors, but a movie star, when they're stuck into a contract and they're like, although, I, I mean, would you say that his bad narration maybe hurt the entire film in the first way? Like, like would people have liked this film better in 82 if he had tried to give it his all? Or did he? was he just sort of flagging like, like a hostage thing, he's blinking at the screen, please let us redo this movie in 10 years. Like, it was it self-defeating or did it set up greatness? I, I honestly don't know.
0: I mean, I don't know either, but I can say that, you know, if you look at the Jason Momoa, um, Ben Affleck version of it now, they're also, you know, pushing the fans towards the idea that this movie that is released is not the movie that they made and they don't like it, but they're not really saying it. And I feel like, you know, by not enthusiastically doing it maybe he let people question it because if this came out now people would be you know arguing for the non voiceover cut you know the Ridley Scott cut they would have taken out the voiceover when it came out online but here's my issue about the voiceover and i really want to kind of break this down with you this movie is kind of uh, a neo noir right it's it has all the things that we know of a noir film and voiceover is one of those things and when I read that Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford were so against voiceover, it felt to me like, well, why? I don't understand why. I mean, I'm not saying that that voiceover we just saw was good um, or even well-written, but why would you be against one of the tenets, one of the biggest principles of of noir?
3: That's true. That's interesting. And also, both of them being against it is... I think one of the only things that Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford had in common at all about the movie. I mean, they didn't get along, they didn't see the character the same way. I mean, apparently Ridley Scott saw the character of Decker really as a traditional Philip Marlowe, you know, the kind of Bogart film we've already seen here at the Maltese Falcon, that kind of hero. And um, meanwhile, Harrison Ford is like, no way, this dude is absolutely Travis Bickle. He was like, oh. This is Travis Bickle. And so that they couldn't even in the core of Talking about this character, agree on who he was. I mean, Travis Bickle to Philip Marlowe is a really big gulf, I, I I mean, find. it's
0: giant. And and you would even look at that in the casting of this film. I mean, Dustin Hoffman was attached to Play Deckard for a while. And it's like, that's a very interesting choice, too. That's so that's neither of those characters you just described. You know, uh, you know, the and you know, the writer said that he always envisioned Robert Mitchum, which I think is closer to Harrison Ford, but maybe it helps the ambiguity of this movie that so many people are adding their two cents to this character because this movie has incited many debates for years and continues to keep uh, a very active debate going. And especially with the latest uh, Blade Runner sequel that just came out, you know, more questions are posited and we don't know anything for sure. And maybe that's why this movie is so wonderful because Voiceover tells you what they're thinking, and we don't need to know that. We just want to have you exist in the unknowing, and maybe that's more of a more of a, a way to tell a sci-fi story. You know, to to have you question yourself and, and what does it mean.
1: I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, Listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now.
3: Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of the audience lending themselves to this film, like bringing themselves double to Blade Runner, Mm -hmm. I I think, as opposed to bringing them to most other sci-fi films, because it's a lot of empty space. You know, it's a lot of watch Descartes, walk around, hear some moody music, he's Technically on a detective quest to find these people, but he's really not doing too much to find these people. They're finding him a little bit. It's stumbling into each other. It's, it's, there's a passivity to the film, you know, that you're just absorbing. You're really just watching the whole world play out in the margins of what's kind of a detective story, but also it, it isn't like a detective story in the beat of like, then I found this clue. See, you know, he finds like the photo, he finds the scale. But other than that, it's, it doesn't have that propulsion of something like the Maltese Falcon. It is more like come into our world.
0: Yeah, not much happens in this movie. If you were to lay it out, you know, it's really just an A to B to C story, no real big twists. Um, and I think what we're really watching or what people are really connected to is the internal struggle of these characters and what's going on that we're not hearing. And that's that to me is the reason why I think this movie has captured people's imaginations for so long, and why you know now almost thirty years later we have a sequel to it because people just love this world and love you know i think like good sci fi it it puts out a question that's universal and kind of timeless
3: yeah you mean the question being like what is a human being
0: yeah because it's it, it's that question wrapped in a detective story like I see the detective story being sold to you know the studio going. It's a detective story, but what Ridley Scott is making is, you know, a story about what it is exactly. What you said to be human, and that is, I mean, you can't sell that movie. You can't sell that movie on this budget. You by saying no, it's it's much more of a, you know, an internal debate about emotions and empathy and who we are and why are we doing what we're doing and you know and, and what purpose do we serve?
3: I mean. I think I am a bit of a bad human (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) because honestly, when I watch this film, I don't care very much about Harrison Ford's struggle. Like, I don't really see it, honestly. I think you can tell that when you look at Harrison Ford's face, there is this tragedy in the eyes, this kind of like weary resignation that, you know, he's adding because, you know, at this point in his career, he's a brand new movie star, like brand, brand new He'd done Star Wars. He had just started to carry a film with Indiana Jones. He's still proving himself as an actual actor. And I think you you do see something quiet in his performance that's him trying to say "There's that this is a different man than, like, the heroes he's been playing. But other than well, that, he I, I actively,
0: don't... he actively searched for that out. Like, he was looking for a part that would challenge him as an actor, that would show him in a different way, that would kind of propel him out of, I think, popcorn films and into you know, more of the dramas that he did do uh, post-Star Wars. You know, uh, I think that he he has a, a handful of those films. His career is an interesting one. Uh, but this is like, I would say this is the most un-Harrison Ford performance that I can recall.
3: I mean, his quest to try to expand his range really explains why he hated making this film so much. Mm-hmm. You know, because you're right. Like, he gets there wanting to be... Proven as an actor, like here's a really cool noir. Here's me starring as somebody who's not ripped from the pages of a comic book, you know, ripped from like the old movie serials. And I'm gonna do this performance. And he shows up on set, and Ridley Scott is just like, "Cool, take care of it, have fun." It is not really connecting with him as a director. You know, Ridley Scott is not there for him as a director. Ridley Scott is there, be- driving everybody insane on set. You know, he would he'd walk into like Tyrell's room, you know, that giant empty space mm. with all the huge columns. And they'd build this entire room for him, and he'd walk in and he'd say, "Turn the columns upside down." And he would make his art department rebuild the whole thing just so that the base of the column was now on the ceiling. And he would spend all day doing that, all day getting the lighting perfect. And you know, Harrison Ford would be there, like, "Hey, let's work on my character. What am I doing?" And he's like, "Blah blah 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 blah. I gotta get the lighting. Let me get the smoke. Let me get the smoke." And Harrison Ford just felt really neglected on that set. Like he felt like there was no, he was he was on his own. And so I think he checks out in a lot of ways. And just, I mean, for everything you hear, he was telling people he wanted to kill Ridley Scott. He was like, I would kill him if I could get away with killing him at this moment. Oh,
0: I mean, they, they are both very public about how much they did not like each other. And I also say that you have to chalk that up to shooting this movie, 50 days of night shoots and what that does to your body and your brain. You know, uh, as someone who has done just a week of night shoots, it, it upsets everything that you know. And it's like, oh, boo-hoo, you're an actor, shut up. But the night shoots do play with your emotions. It just, it, you're, you're living in this weird world because you can't really fully sleep during the day like you would sleep at night. It just, it creates a bizarre uh, energy. But I do think that that, discon- that disconnection from Ridley, that you know, uh, upsetting of the equilibrium of sleep creates actually a more interesting character. You know, it's sort of it's like uh, you know, maybe it's antithetical, like you should just be able to act these things and and not have to live under it, but it makes the film, I think, feel uh like Ridley Scott is viewing him almost like the character is in the film, like a tool, a weapon. He is the tool. He is the actor that's telling the story. He's not a partner with him. Like Harrison Ford is a lone man in this movie. So by putting him in that position, and again, I'm not defending directors uh, torturing someone to get a performance, but I feel like I understand that, you know, like that Harrison Ford didn't feel like he had an ally here. But I think that that actually makes the character pop more.
3: I mean, that's interesting. Like it, it does seem when you hear Harrison Ford talk about the film, that he felt like his character was only there to have something to draw attention to the sets. You know, like I mean he, he he said he was a detective who didn't who didn't do any detecting he's like I'm just here to walk through these sets and give people something to look at so they notice the rest of the scenery. Well,
0: that's like such like bullshit actory stuff because here's the thing this is known or regarded as one of the most beautiful, you know, visions of the future even though it's disgusting and and overpopulated and dark and dank and on fire. It is, you know, This movie, like Metropolis, holds up decades after its release because it is so incredibly unique. It doesn't feel like cardboard walls. I mean, and, you know, part of that whole reason why this movie does look so good is because when they were starting to go into production, the actor strike happened. So they had all this time before production began where they had all their uh, wardrobe and costumers and set designers still kind of on the payroll. So they just kept on building more stuff and making it more intricate because, there's nothing else to do. It kind of benefited from this moment to really uh, embrace the the sets and the and the look of this film. And and, it's, and that's really what's kind of overpowering. Yes, the look is amazing, but there's no movie with just sets. I mean, it's, you know, I, I think it's I think that that's Harrison Ford just being a little bit sour grapes.
3: I don't know. I mean, when you hear any of the cast members, all they ever say is like, oh, this one cool thing my character did. I came up with that. Like, it he, it, I guess, in a way, Ridley Scott's reticence allowed the characters, the actors themselves, just to fill their characters with things that he didn't bother putting in the script. You know, like Edward yeah. James almost saying, "It was my idea to have blue eyes. It was my idea to come up with this language. I did the work of inventing the crazy language of City Speak." Which I, I, I can we listen a little bit of City Speak? I think it's so. Oh, I fun. love
6: it. Hey, Edie
7: Water. Asio,
6: engam He's saying you're under arrest, Mister Decker. Got the wrong guy, pal. He's saying you're play, Cleveland. He say you' now. Tell him I'm eating.
3: Captain Brian, talk up.
6: Any Brian,
3: huh? I mean, when I listened to that clip of of Edward James, almost. Making up this language that he studied, yeah, like he like went to linguists and came up with uh, like ideas of what this language could be to signify that this is a culture where different languages have just melded into the city and formed this new polyglot Esperanto-y language. I mean, I feel like I hear Japanese in there. I've read it's that Hungarian there's, and there's Hungarian, Hungarian, yeah, and yeah. Hungarian. Yeah, I think one of the words he says in Hungarian is horse dick.
0: Isn't that how every film though is? It's sort of like. Oh, that was my idea. I brought that in. And and I, I don't wanna I don't wanna bash on Ridley Scott too much because I also feel like the way that this movie continues to grow, Ridley Scott is very much hands-on with this is the final cut, this is the director's cut. And and every version of it gets better and better, which means that he had all the pieces there. And I do think there's pride as an actor. You take, oh, I, I brought this to the table and I did this. And yes. We'll get to it in a little bit, but as you heard in the opening, Rucker Hauer's monologue is beautiful. And if that is improvised, that's great. But I think they have to be brought in. You have to be inspired by this. And I, I love that these actors are actually doing the work. I don't know. It's like, I, 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 I'm I, not trying to be a Ridley Scott defender, but I also <laughs> no, if believe- if Ridley
3: Scott was a tortoise, you would turn him up right side up. That's what you're doing. You're turning the tortoise right side up.
0: <laughs> but you know what I, but I guess what I'm saying is like, there is more, it like, wasn't like Ridley Scott just like, let the cameras roll, like everything in this film seems very deliberate. I mean, the fact that all the replicants, you know, have like a visual or, you know, thematic relation to an animal is really interesting. Like, you know, it's sort of like, you know, uh, you have like Zora looks like a snake and Pris, a raccoon. And, you know, uh, Roy Batty is like howling like a wolf. And you have, you know, I think people have said that Leon Kowalski looks like a tortoise and uh and Rachel, you know, uh it kind of has like that same look of the owl you kind of put them together, like I think there's a lot of good directing going on here, like just to say like, oh, he didn't care if he's flipping over a column, I think that means he's caring. It's not like he's has he has a vision, he executed this vision, and if in in a weird way, if he's talking about a lot of robots and a lot of characters that lack empathy, I mean that's you know by keeping everybody cold it's it's uh you know, uh, emotionally cold. Maybe he he added to this. I mean, you know, I don't know.
3: <laughs> I don't know if I think he's that delivered in setting up a mood for them. I've, al- I've always thought of Re- Ridley Scott as a replicant director, you know, mm. as a person who is a robot, who's interested in creating and building and has the skill to do a lot of great things, but is missing a piece of humanity. I feel like he and Nolan are really similar in this. I feel like they make films that are about giant questions about love and life and humanity because they don't really understand it, so they're trying to make films to try to understand it, and that's why they're so obsessed by these questions, like, "What does it mean to love something? Can love save the world? Like, am I a good person?" I think they have this clinical detachment from it because I don't think when I watch their films that they understand the mechanics of humans, but I think they understand right. the mechanics of awe, you know. And so, right. and so, I think I think it's when I see their, their films. I just see these core similarity personality traits in both of them that I find I find a little cold and alienating which is I think why I don't I'm not always quick to praise them.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I think you can say the same thing for your favorite uh Mr. James Cameron who I feel like You always well, have to go there. <laughs> uh, I, I I you know, but I I think that there is something about these people who understand the technical nature of film and and I think George Lucas goes in this category. I think George Lucas at the end of, uh, you know, American Graffiti by putting up those title cards, like, feel emotion now. And I think that, you know, in, uh, in uh, James Cameron's work, there's very clear, like, this is an emotional moment. I feel like in this movie, there's emotional moments. And I don't disagree with you that these people may not be fully in touch with their emotional selves. I mean, Ridley Scott said that what he brought to this movie was the energy that he had After his brother had died, he'd been visiting his brother who was dying in a hospital in this darkness that was hanging over him. And I think that that really, that depression is something that fueled this movie and those choices in this movie. Uh, But I don't disagree with what you're saying. I just don't think that that is, I think in a weird way by taking out the emotionality sometimes, you know, sometimes it doesn't work, but I think in other times you really get to see... I don't know, like a rawness that you don't often see in films. I think sometimes films can be so flowery and this is kind of making it really base. You're just watching people and, and you're seeing bad people. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if I have a fully formed thought on this, but I just feel like maybe that lack of emotionality in these directors that you just mentioned that I just mentioned are sometimes good to create something that feels very uniquely different. I don't know.
3: I mean, yeah, I, I think they they lean into their strengths, um, but I, I don't. I will, I will disagree with one point about your Cameron thing, which is I, as I mm-hmm. think that Cameron genuinely loves and cares about his characters. I think I think he, okay. I think that the characters in his film do have a lot more life. I think when I picture like a okay, I prefer Aliens to Alien. I really do. Okay. I think I think Aliens is the movie where I really fall in love with Sigourney Weaver's character. And I'm like, you are amazing. And it has like the wit and the charm that I just, I adore. And it, to me, it makes it superior than Alien. I think it has just a more energy to it. And I feel like with the James Cameron character, you know, these people that he puts forth, like, if you want me to, you know, think about the inner life of Rose and Jack from Titanic or you know, everything that's happening with Linda Hamilton's character in Terminator, I feel like I know them. You know, I can understand who they are. Whereas I feel like a character in a Ridley Scott movie, if the camera's not on them, I can't picture that character having any life at all. You know, if the camera's not on Deckard, what is he doing? He, I can only picture him sitting on a couch and drinking a whiskey. Like, he doesn't have an inner life to me.
0: Mm, see, I don't know about that. I mean, I do believe, though, that Ridley Scott, with the character of Ripley, and he kind of I think strips down characters and and makes you look at them in a different way he's not going to spoon feed the character to you if that makes sense like and I think that's that's why these movies exist for such a long time Why we're connected to movies like Blade Runner and Alien because it is kind of a a stripped down version of the hero and I and I and 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 Deckard I I feel like I can watch him I don't know I can really watch him I feel like I get I get him I mean what what is more engaging about him than Philip Marlowe? Do you feel like there are different characters there? I mean, or the way that Humphrey Bogart played Philip Marlowe?
3: You know, I was thinking about that. I mean, as, as I was watching the movie this time, and I was trying to think of the moments where I genuinely enjoy watching and caring about Rick, Rick Descartes. And I do like Rick Descartes, you know, a handful of moments. Like, I like him when he is waiting to get noodles. I like watching him wait to get noodles. I like his exasperation as he's getting noodles. I like the confident way that he opens up his, his chopsticks when he's getting noodles. Basically, everything about him and noodles, wanting to keep eating the noodles, continue to eat the noodles in the cop car. Uh, I like that. He, he starts off, I think, more human than he is in the rest of the film.
0: I mean, I love the phone call that he has with Sean Young in the film. I, I you know, And then there's, a, I think, a slightly interesting choice to have him you know, force himself on this replicant and, and what does even that mean? Because he knows that she's not real. So is he treating her like one of these pleasure dolls? Does he really have a connection to her? I mean, we know now a couple of the answers to these things because of the new Blade Runner movie, but I want to kind of leave that on the shelf because I feel like we should get talk about this movie in its vacuum of what it is, you know. Um, but there are some choices that are interesting about him. Like, you know, Is he empathetic? I mean, this is a movie that deals about, that's talking about empathy. So you can't have an incredibly empathetic character. You have no mystery. You know, it's like, we're trying to figure out the whole movie. Does he have empathy? Like, is he a replicant or is he real? And and everyone seemingly is divided on it, from Harrison Ford to Ridley Scott to, you know, uh, writers, people have written very passionate pleas on either side of this. And you can make a case for either one of them. And the only way you can do that is by having that ambiguity. I don't think that you can really love these characters or make them super heartwarming because then that would defeat the purpose. You would feel like you would know the answer. Right now, I don't, you know, I can be swayed by a good argument.
3: Okay. I don't think he's a replicant.
0: You don't think he's a replicant? (laughs) No. No, Then why don't you think he's a replicant?
3: Well, the main reason why I don't think he's a replicant is because he's so weak compared to all of the other replicants. Like, he can't fight or jump. He's not half as strong. I mean, the way Leon Kowalski just easily smacks a gun out of his hand, slams him against the table. If he is a replicant, he's like, replicate Nexus 0.0001. Like, he can't do anything. And so, I don't think he's a replicant at all. I mean, if he was, I think he'd just be a better fighter.
0: I mean, look, I, I think I believe that he is not a replicant as well. But I think the movie does a really good job of laying clues on either side of it. I mean, you know, you know, maybe he's programmed not to fight that well. Maybe he is, you know. <laughs> Who would I mean, do, do you, that? Well, do you think that Sean? But do you think that Sean Young? Do you think that Sean Young could take on Rucker Hauer?
3: Okay, interesting question. Uh, no, <laughs> maybe she's. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, you don't. No, you don't see like,
0: anything from her, like in that in that big fight sequence in the street. You well, know, where maybe Jason she's Kowalski. a pleasure model. Well, maybe there—if there's a pleasure model and there's a a slave labor model, there might be a Blade Runner model. I mean, we—I mean, Uh now now I'm breaking my own rule. But a
3: Blade Runner is there to kill people. I mean, that's their whole job. And retire,
0: Amy. Retire. Retire. Retire.
3: And honestly, if if Sean Young was a pleasure model, I think she'd be more fun to be around. I mean, Mm. Daryl Hannah is funny. Daryl Hannah is capable of like flirting and wheedling, and and she has such charisma when she shows up that Sean Young doesn't. I think so. You're how- again,
0: you're again proving my point that there could be many very uh, different versions. Like, what is Sean Young if she's not a pleasure model or a like a slave labor model? Oh, I mean, she's a you know.
3: she's a boring model.
0: You don't like Sean Young in this movie?
3: No, not at all. If we're going to really go, wow. There. I mean, would okay. every time I kind of lose it a bit at this movie is right at the beginning you know when you have this test with Rachel and he's asking her questions
6: it's your birthday someone gives you a casket skin wallet I wouldn't accept it also I'd report the person who gave it to me to the police you've got a little boy he shows you his butterfly collection plus the killing jar
4: I take him to the doctor
6: You're watching television. Suddenly you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. I'd kill it. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please. I mean...
3: When that scene ends with him being like, "Wow, that took a hundred questions, really hard." I'm like, "She's clearly the most robotic person in this movie. Like, she she could just walk across a room, and the way she walks across the room, I'm like, that's a replicant."
0: Well, I mean, look, I think everyone in this movie is certainly directed. Like, I have, a I like to me, like, I think that Gaff can be a replicant. Like, I like, I everyone in this movie (laughs) has this, you know, the only person that I'm pretty sure is not a replicant is uh, the police chief, you know, who feels the most human in this entire story. Uh, you know, even Tyrell, you know, if Ty- if we look at Tyrell and we go, oh, Tyrell made these uh, characters, you know, I- I- to embody a-, a piece of him. I mean, when we meet him in his room, that looks like it's straight up out of the Vatican. Uh, he also lacks emotion. You know, he like there, they're this idea that we've like kind of you know I, here's a here's a thought I'll put forward, right? Have we become, or will we become in the future, so overcome by terrible news, whether it's famine, uh, natural disasters, social injustices, that we start to emotionally shut off that we cannot carry it anymore? And this is maybe a, a vision of the future where we are basically shutting off our emotions because we're so overwhelmed by it. in this movie. You know, it looks like the sky is polluted. The world is full of police. There are, you know, threats of violence all over the place. There is there is nothing happy in this world. And maybe that world starts to reflect how we become as people, like these kind of empty vessels just trying to get through our days. And what's so interesting about this movie is that you have Harrison Ford's character getting ignited by love, being connected to this person. And for whatever reason, maybe because she's pure, she's innocent, she seems fresh to him and not jaded. That is, that is like the the uh the light that starts the the fire that opens him up and creates a, a much more, you know, maybe that changes society.
3: I mean, I like that theory a lot. And and I I do believe that all of the replicants in the film have so much more life than any of the human beings. That most of the human beings are flat and numb. And I feel like We live in an era where I can see how that could happen. And and so in a way, I just wish then the movie was about that. You know, what does it mean that humans have become less human than the replicants? Which I think is there. But we keep getting geared toward this question of like, is Deckard or not a replicant? Which I think is the most boring of all questions. Like, I don't even know why that should be a question. Make him a replicant or don't. Like, make him a a replicant. And then we can examine, you know, a replicant realizing he's a replicant. Or make him not a replicant and just have it be human versus replicant. And what does it mean? And who are we rooting for when the human is so boring? But to have that kind of like, eh, is he is he not thing? I, I it seems like there was a point in this movie where Ridley Scott just wanted everybody to be a replicant. Like there was a the script originally had Tyrell, the Tyrell that they meet, um, who gets who gets killed by Roy, he was gonna smash his head open and then it was gonna be nothing but wires and they were gonna realize that Tyrell was a replicant mm. and that the real Tyrell was had been. Um, Dead and frozen, but the stock, the the board of the stock, the stock board members didn't want the stock to go down if people knew it was dead, so they just built a new Tyrell. Eddie, I mean, I guess, but then I mean, but like, there's something
0: there. There is something so interesting. I love those title cards in the beginning of the final cut, which is the one that we both watched, where you know it just kind of lays down this world. Like science has kind of built this thing. And this is what I think we always are debating this idea, like. You know, can we build something that like takes over for us? And if it infiltrated our society slowly but surely, we don't even know anymore who we're dealing with. I mean, it's I from a storytelling perspective, I agree with you. From a sci-fi perspective, I think it's really interesting to be constantly on guard. I mean, that's like one of the reasons why I love the final scene in the movie when Harrison Ford goes back to his apartment. And you see this fear of he's living in this fear, and we talk about fear and we talk about like, you know. When Rucker Hauer says to him, are you afraid? You know, that's what it's like to be a slave. Like, this is; these are all characters that are, I think, living in fear and despair. I don't know. Uh, I, so I see what you're saying, that it, it may be an easy way out to say, could everybody be a repl- uh, replicant? Yeah, I hear that. But I also don't mind discussing it, if that makes <laughs> sense. So you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like, I get both sides of it, but I'm also engaged to be like, oh, wow. uh, yeah, maybe it is.
3: There's very fine replicants on both sides.
0: Uh, Can I just tell you one thing? (laughs) that um, Where this whole premise of the Philip K. Dick, I mean, obviously, if you don't know this, uh, uh, this movie is based on a Philip K. Dick short story, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And um, the reason why he came up with this idea was he was researching, this Philip K. Dick, uh, The Man in the High Castle, which deals with Nazis conquering the planet in the 1940s, and he was granted access to archived World War II Gestapo documents at a UC Berkeley campus, and he read these diaries from SS men in Poland, and they were so unreadable for their casual cruelty and lack of human empathy, he was startled by this passage. He says, We are kept awake at night by the cries of starving children. And he determined that there must be something wrong with them, and that Nazism indicated that these men could not be categorized as human. No matter how much they looked like humans, they clearly weren't. I love that. I just love that, like, the, the diary passages, we were kept awake at night by the cries of starving children. No empathy there, and this idea that, like, you know, you know, we start to lose humanity. I mean, we're right now, not to, not to get off on a full tangent, but we right now are in this moment, like, where is our human empathy when you have, like, Pence tweeting out things about, you know, we need to protect property you know uh, when we're when we're dealing with really a, a giant crisis, and I, I, I don't calling workers
3: human stock capital.
0: Yeah, there there's a lot of this going on, and maybe in this watch of it, I, I connected to that as well. Like, who are these people that are walking around, looking and speaking like us, but yet they don't seem to have the normal human emotions that we all like? When you watch somebody say or do something that seems so. I'm not talking about political beliefs, but disregarding of humanity that to me is so interesting, and I think that that's why this movie resonates too is like you know this idea that we you know we can look among us and we don't know. I mean, I think they live as the comedy version of this or the more popcorn version of this, like who are these aliens? Who are these people that look that are among us, and we have to hunt them out and figure out who they are?
3: no, that's I fair, and I'll, and I think there's a big difference between. You having disagreements on politics and having disagreements on humanity. You you can disagree on like, here's how I think the budget should go. But when the core argument comes down to, here's how much I feel about keeping my other humans on this planet alive, or I think other humans on this planet deserve to be alive. That's not politics. That is humanity. That's morality. Yeah.
0: And there is something about this movie that is about humanity. What does it mean to be human? And I think that that's where Rucker Hauer's character, I mean, the speech at the end and and what they're doing is that like they want more life. They want, you know, they and, and then that's a theme that we are all kind of chasing too. This idea of like, how do we, you know, we want to live our fullest life. We wanna like, you know, it's it's interesting that this this character is on the run and 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 she gets a job and as like, I mean, I don't know if she's a, an exotic dancer. I don't know exactly what her job is. Um, uh, the one with the snake. But, you know, she wants to experience these things. They all want to experience. Certain things, and yes, they're also out to like fix themselves, live longer, and escape. But they are also oddly engaging in humanity. They want to engage in humanity. I think of Rucker Hauer saving, uh, you know, Harrison Ford at the end is an attempt to embrace humanity. What is it like to save somebody? You know, uh, you know, he's showing humanity, showing empathy, which is something that we have been told from the beginning that these characters don't have. But yet yeah, he does but have it. But yet they have
3: and, more than everybody else.
0: Yeah, it's like, are we are we saying, like you know this this idea? Are we are we shortchanging people by saying, oh, you don't feel humanity? Or, are we not giving people a chance to feel humanity? I don't know. There's there's so many big questions here. Maybe uh, are the questions posed greater than the film? And I feel like that's kind of like and you maybe are looking at it a little bit more from the film point of view. And I because I don't disagree with what you're saying as a film. But, I also feel like I can't separate the film from the questions it kind of asks because like that's where I get deep into this yeah. wormhole and why the rewatches are so fun for me
3: I mean that's fair and and I do think there's something so touching in the fact that you know that Roy and Pris have not had a good life you know they've seen horrible things. Pris has been you know treated as a sex slave on a military base, and yet they're fighting for the ability to stay alive that they they believe in being alive so much even though it hasn't given them any joy you know to this point yeah. and i think there's something beautiful in that i mean, I mean the, the the lack of everybody wealthy of everybody who looks like harrison ford other than harrison ford being on this planet when they look at harrison ford and they're like what are you doing here like why are you here you know or, no. or wondering like did you fail the medical is that is that why you didn't get taken up in outer space the Already that there's so much segmentation on this planet that the movie just is able to glance at, but then move past from because it's just a given in this world that, you know, the Peter Teals have pieced off to New Zealand.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about it too. It's there is so much about I mean, this is a movie about, you know, a little bit like inner cities as well. You can talk about the idea like the inner city is kind of forgotten about, and the idea is like, I want to get out of the inner city to live in the in the quote-unquote like nice area the wealthy area that you know and it's this constant idea of like you know why are you still you don't have to be here why are you still here and it's like well we shouldn't just abandon those parts of our culture either or that those parts of our you know world but it seems like this this movie is saying like you know wash our hands of it we got to get out of here it just it didn't work and we're done yeah you know which is what's
3: happening
0: yeah, uh, no, which is
3: why we all need to break into Peter Chill's compound before he gets there in New Zealand. He doesn't get <laughs> to live there. I think we should all get to live there. I, mean, I yeah, don't want like, to live the- there.
0: It seems so dark. It seems so dark.
3: Well, we'll redecorate.
0: <laughs> I mean,
3: we don't have to live by his like metal couch aesthetic. But no, I mean, this 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 rain that's supposedly falling is supposed to be acid rain you know, there's supposed to be this, this element of like, we've ruined the planet, you know, in the early eighties, we already knew we were destroying the planet environmentally. And they pictured this town being they, the first name for the city where he's living wasn't Los Angeles. It was San Angeles. It was this mm. metropolis that they thought ran all the way through California from San Francisco to Mexico, just wall to wall buildings. And I had to well, say I, like in that yeah. opening shot, when you see the flames and the fireballs, when you pan up that giant building you know, I really wish I could be in the theater watching that sitting next to D.W. Griffith because what do you think he would say? Would he just be like, oh my God? Or would he be like, you should have actually built that entire city.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, they kind of, look, they kind of did. If you look at the blueprints for the Warner Brothers back lot, I mean, it, I guess it's like about two city blocks, but they, they did it. I mean, this movie is more practical than it is, uh, you know, CG. I mean, it's models and things like that. I mean, you're right, like, yeah, he may have done it uh, a lot bigger, but uh, but it still is. I'm pretty impressed with how uh, how it looks.
3: Yeah, my friend used to live in the house right next to um, the Blade Runner house, where uh, where Descartes lives. You know, the kind of mm. Aztec noir house. And I yeah. swear, every time I parked in front of it, you're just like, "Whoa!" I can't believe that actually was real. And in a way, the fact that that is a, not a set, that that is a house that we actually built on this planet, makes me long for a time when our architecture was that ambitious yeah that was just built as a house and we made it futuristic because we didn't keep up with the future of building a cool ass house like that
0: or or is it like this idea that we are constantly living in just shit out the same model house and that's the community looks everything looks the same everything is cookie cutter we all go to target we all you know and i'm guilty of these things i'm just saying like or we have taken out individuality in a lot of places for convenience right and And when you see a house that doesn't conform to the architecture of the neighborhood, a lot of the times it's like, Oh, look at that. Eyesore that house is painted a color that doesn't fit our neighborhood. And the neighborhood gets upset. Like there's no individuality in it. Um, and that's interesting because at the same time, like that we want this kind of, um, we want this conformity. Uh, we also want an incredible amount of individuality. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to say. You know, it's, it's sort of like we want conformity in our, we want like our exterior to be conformed to society, but our interior to be completely unique. I, I do love though, this is a time where film is embracing like this, they're seeing the future, this dystopian future, because a year before this movie comes out, Escape from New York comes out, and years after this movie, Demolition Man comes out, which, you know, these, all these movies, and, and there's many in between, because this, this movie, I think, is in you know this idea of like what is our future and the future is often you know grim i mean star trek is like one of the lone examples of of a beautiful you know uh future you know there's a war but it's also earth is pristine and clear and we've figured it out we've worked together it's harmonious you know but most sci-fi does paint a pretty awful picture and uh you know it's it, it, I, I just think that this and that this and escape from new york are coming out like right after each other is really interesting to me
3: yeah, I mean, I love all those 80s dystopian films, you know, that are all, you know, coming out in a period where we're wondering whether or not this planet's going to be uh, obliterated by nuclear attacks, that we're seeing Reaganism start to destroy the middle class existence here, and we're starting to see more division between the haves and the have-nots in America. You know, but when you just have this kind of, like, boom, boom, boom of, like, Terminator in Brazil and Robocop and They Live and The Running Man, I mean... Total Recall, of Repo Man, which we did that live show about Max Headroom. Like, yeah. I, lo- I love all of these movies. And honestly, the questions about humanity that I do find interesting, I find them more interesting in RoboCop and in Brazil. I really Ooh. like RoboCop in Brazil, for which I think are driving a lot of the same things. Like, what happens when the government just sees you as a number and not as a real person? What happens when you're the enforcer of civil codes, but also you're the victim of civil codes? Like, all of that. I love those films.
0: I, I I love those films too. I think Robocop especially is a movie that is actually, we should do an episode on that is a, is a movie that is kind of, I think, walking that line of being a commercial success and also putting forth some very, very big ideas. And I think that Nolan did that to go back to Nolan. He did that even in Dark Knight by taking like a very commercial film, but then in Putting in these bigger ideas, and and oddly, I think a lot of people have been playing clips of Bane uh, lately as we have been going through this pandemic. I think like he's he's inserting some of these big ideas in in some uh, more commercial properties, which is interesting. And this movie feels like it's I don't know is this movie popular? It's hard to tell if this movie is popular. It is a, definitely a giant cult favorite, but is this a movie that people are going to be watching on the reg or is it just something that's held in high esteem on the side i don't know i mean what do you think
3: i mean i have a couple of things that i that came to mind as you were talking like one i think the dark knight is my favorite nolan film besides memento because of those questions i love that blowing up the sh- blowing up the boat scene i love that blowing up the boat scene mm-hmm. i just think so, that
0: yeah wonderful
3: that's really smart and really moving um but yeah like blade runner is one of those movies that was definitely a I was too young for it, of course, when it came out. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I don't think I saw it until the 2000s. And it was one of those movies that was very much like every boyfriend I had being like, you have to watch Blade Runner with me. It's my favorite movie. And I think I have this knee-jerk resistance to it for that. That's part of why I've never seen the Star Wars prequels. I had a boyfriend who's like, you have to watch the Star Wars prequels. I'm projecting them on my wall. And I said, I'm going home.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow, I love that your boyfriend really was adamant about you watching the prequels uh, I've never really heard that uh, <laughs> But yeah
3: uh, I, I think there is a little bit of of the cult of Blade Runner I me still trying to separate the cult from how I feel about the film because yeah, I, I think I mean, part of me is always dug in my heels in part because of my knee-jerk resistance to the tenor of a Ridley Scott film you know and my my kind of exhaustion with directors who were absolute hell fiends on set. I mean, this is another one where there's a giant fight on the set between the British and Americans, just like we saw with River Kwai. Like, he just redid the River Kwai thing again. Ridley Scott spent the whole movie, like, running around and complaining that all of the Americans weren't as obedient to him as British crews were. You know, because... Okay, just talk about the setting of Ridley Scott when he shows up here to put him into context. Like, yeah, this is one of only his first films. But he came to this being like, I am an award-winning commercial director. I've made over 2,000 commercials. You know i made this one commercial for chanel that like revolutionized commercials uh, here i want to even just hear this because i think you hear a little bit of blade runner in it it's also populated with beautiful replicants also called models but but yeah he shows up on the set being like i am the guy like this is the world that i can create that only i can create and he's furious because a lot of the american crew just won't do what he says you know he was like listen when i'm in england i ask for something the crew just says quote yes governor and they go get it and the americans were so offended by this idea that they made t-shirts that said yes governor my ass and they wore I them heard. around the set. Yeah. And, then, <laughs> and then he wore a shirt that says xenophobia sucks, which I think is confusing because it's like he's mad at them for being mad at him. But he's the xenophobic one if he thinks that British people are better or more obedient to him than the Americans. I don't know. I confusing. think he
0: was saying it like, you know, they were making fun of his accent, like in making fun of his culture by because he said, you know, by putting a shirt that says, like, yes, governor, like it felt like they were making fun of his culture. So he's saying like, you know, I mean, look, I they were just specifically
3: making fun of him.
0: I I <laughs> love a T-shirt war. I mean, look, Amy, this movie is plagued by problems. There literally is a, a documentary called Living in Fear, uh, tension on the set uh, that really delves into all the problems in this movie. Um, there was a, uh, you know, there was a producer on this film who wanted to take over directing from Ridley Scott like the final scene of the movie was like shot minutes before the studio was going to take away all the control from the film like there this movie was completely under you know under the gun we have our our star and our director not agreeing with each other now they think they've gotten over that but there's so much there's so much bad blood on this movie um but then again there's so many cool things in the way that this world looks. We've talked about it a little bit. I just want to play, this is a clip from uh, Sid Mead, who uh, was originally hired to design the vehicles and the props, uh, but Ridley Scott loved it so much that he was like designed the entire environment. Um, and so this is kind of how he went about Blade Runnerizing the world. And I think this is so interesting because this is stuff that we don't really ever see, but it exists in the world. So this is him talking about a, um, a parking meter. This parking meter is a kind of miniature example
6: of the whole visual concept of accumulation. You start with a recognizable parking meter inside all this stuff, and it's it's there. That's the reason for adding on to it from the first place, for economy. Uh, when you no longer can accept coins or, or metal discs or whatever, you add a electronic register that accepts a magnetic card. Uh, the post-mechanical case becomes electrified so that if you touch it or try to attack it, uh, you're electrocuted, which is a a very brutal attack on on you as a human. And uh, by adding additional lights, larger scale, it's easier to see at night. It can be used for directing traffic down lanes or maybe the lights change color, something like that.
0: I just love the amount of thought he put into a parking meter that is not even figured prominently in the film and i and I do think that like that this movie, even though we've talked about like a lot of the problems, is so built up by this the the design of it I mean the design is staggering, yeah, I mean the
3: story that I heard is that when Ridley Scott was working on the script, you know first with Hampton Fancher, then with david peoples that he kept saying, like, this is really boring. There's not a lot of story here. It's just this guy walking around with these questions. And he finally said, what we need to do is we need to think, like, outside of Deckard's world. And we need to look out that window. And it was really, like, look out the window is his metaphor for what does this world look like. Like, let's build out this world to, to really, I guess, bolster, support, distract from the plot, all of these things. Like Because you're right. I, when you watch this movie, you just want to disappear into the production design. And they couldn't even call Sid Sid Mead the production designer because he wasn't officially allowed to be called a production designer. So they just called him the futurist who was on oh, set. Wow. But I think that is the strength of it. It's like distract from the fact that the plot might be a little dull with all of this cool stuff to look at. That does draw you because every time you watch this film, I feel like you see something different. And by the way, you know, Sid Mead just recently died. And a couple years before he died, he was talking about androids again. Like, can they be real? Because he was this futurist who specialized in thinking about what this planet was going to become. And he did say um, that he thinks um, that the race for androids is going to come down to two things. You don't know what they are because this is from Sid Beat himself yeah. predicting it. He says there's an, e- there's an ethical problem. Like, are we going to come up with a living, organic, artificial being where there is definitely an ethical problem? Or are we going to mix the two, like have an organic being plus an overlaying uh, overlaying like a mechanical underneath? And he says that within 10 years, we're going to have to figure out this problem. So that oh, countdown that. clock is ticking. Well,
0: I mean, hope we can get there. Um, I want to talk about both things you just talked about. Let me just first kind of put a little bit of a cap on uh, Sid Mead here. Um, I just want to pull out some of the things that were in the background that you might not have seen. Um, on the bus, there's a placard that says, Driver is armed, carries no cash. The parking meters are three dollars a minute. On the magazine racks, uh, there are uh, adult magazines called "Crotch" with a K. Uh, there was one called "Creative Emotion" and a nudie mag called "Horn" that had an article called uh, "Scratch and Sniff Center Spread." Uh, there was a crime oh, magazine God. called Yeah, I know. There was a crime <laughs> magazine called Kill, and one of the articles in Kill was 98 Dead on Spinner Drive." and death penalty snuffs out 12 jurors in a freak accident. But I oh
1: love God. that, like, so
0: many little, little details. Uh, so that was just one thing just about just how intense it was. And again, going back to thank goodness for the actor strike. Let's talk about this idea of androids. You just said androids. Now, the Philip K. Dick short story was, do androids dream of electric sheep? But the word android is no uh, is not in this movie at all. Replicant, right, is in this film. And... Uh, even the term Blade Runner is not in the, the uh, Philip K. Dick story. Blade Runner is actually stolen from, uh, not stolen, taken from uh, another book, uh, another futurist book about, like, someone that was stealing, like, medical supplies. Uh, but I wanted to talk about this idea of the android and why android wasn't in it. And here is Ridley Scott on the set of Blade Runner back in the 80s uh, talking about the difference between android and replicant.
7: When we set out to do this film... Uh, we decided to make, there was a taboo word, but I may as well use the taboo word, because it's uh, it's somehow, uh, the word was android. And I said, uh, anybody uses the word android gets their head broken with a baseball bat, okay? Because it sets up all sorts of um, preconceptions of the kind of film it could be, right? And yet the word android in a way is, a, is really, a man-made development on, let's say, robot. A robot, biomechanoid, android. An android may actually be human. I mean, may actually be flesh and blood, genetically structured. Okay. So we simply decided to not use the word because it's been overused and misused. And so we developed our own word, which is the word replicant, um, which is essentially a human being.
0: I thought that was interesting. The idea that, like, he really. This is a manufactured human being, not a, a robot. And I, I and I'd never really thought of that in, in that kind of way before until I heard him say that. It's like, oh, right, we're man- you are manufacturing a human. You've figured out this process. It's, you know, it's not Terminator. It's not like flesh over an endoskeleton like we were even talking about uh, just a second ago. It's something very, it, like, uh, I mean, it's created in a lab. It's a test tube baby to the... Nth degree to a certain degree.
3: I mean, yeah, I think you can hear the Ridley Scott scorn for androids in the way that he has the police chief call them skin jobs. You know, like he uses skin jobs and he has him say skin jobs in a way where it's so much a slur to that idea that it's just skin over something artificial. Uh, uh,
0: Yeah, I I uh, I love that. Um, There's so much to talk about. I mean, we've been talking for a while. I just wanted to ask you if you could guess my favorite part of the film. It's it's a part that we've seen in another AFI Top 100 film, done by the same actor. So here's here I'm, I'm laying down some very big clues.
3: What? Okay. Uh, is it my favorite part of the film, which is when Harrison Ford uh, drinks a shot? I like it when he drinks the shot because when he drinks the shot here, after he's been bashed in the face, you see that little bit of blood go into the shot glass. I can Ooh, picture I him that. drinking a shot in Indiana Jones.
0: Not the one on the list. Not the one I was thinking of on the list. That was a good guess. My favorite moment is Harrison Ford playing the nerdy character, which he played in Star Wars, <laughs> uh, where he has to, like he's trying to dissuade the stormtroopers from coming up to the cell block, uh, and um, and here he plays like the the representative for the uh, performers guild, and it's so funny to me that he puts on this voice. For, for both of these performances, because the voice, like, they don't know what his voice sounds like. It's like like Harrison Ford could speak the same way, but he puts on this nerdy voice. Let's play a clip of that. <laughs> I'm from the uh, Confidential Committee on Moral Abuses.
6: Committee of Moral Abuses? Yes, ma'am. There's been some reports that the management have been taking liberties with the artists in this place. I don't know nothing about it. Have you felt yourself to be exploited in any way? How do you mean exploited? Well, like to get this job. I mean, did did you do or, or were you asked to do anything that's lewd or unsavory or otherwise uh, repulsive to, to your person? Huh? <laughs> Are you for real? Oh yeah. <laughs> I'd like to to check your dressing room, if I may. For what? For uh, for holes. Holes? Well, you'd be surprised when a guy go through to get a glimpse of a beautiful body.
3: I actually pulled that clip for a different reason. I mean, yes, I love his nerdy voice and that. And it does make me laugh, too. But I love that they're actually doing something about me, too, in this era. <laughs> at least that timing yes. is stacking up. <laughs> yeah, we, no. we may not care about human beings, but at least we're going to try to keep them from being sexually harassed.
0: <laughs> um, she seems so taken aback by it. Like she's like, uh, uh, yeah, of course I'm sexually harassed at this job. Like,
3: um, uh, can I say though, I've never understood how she's introduced at that club. Like she's the superstar who's been there forever when she hasn't been there more than like a week or two. According well, that's to what the I was,
0: plot. I was kind of wondering why she decided to go work there. And then if she was trying to get money for them to get off world, she spends all that money on a snake, which we know like those snakes are expensive. Because in this world, animals are extinct or very close to being extinct. Um, So it is interesting. It's like she did. I mean, yeah, who knows? Time goes fast in the future.
3: Who knows? I love her hair dryer as a person who hates to dry my hair.
0: Oh, it's great. It's very very George Jetson.
3: (laughs) There's so many things in this movie, though, that I'm always like, that's cool. But like the fact that everybody, when they look at their, they're always staring at photos of their relatives, who I guess are dead. I mean, nobody seems to try or call them. But all the photos of the relatives look like they're from the 1800s when they should really just look like people from the 1980s. You know, like, it's me <laughs> yeah. from ye old Victorian era. Like, what? That's not your mom. Your mom is wearing guest jeans. Your mom should be wearing guest uh-huh. jeans in that photo on your piano.
0: But I do think it kind of uh, helps make the movie a little bit less caught in a time, you know, I, I feel like the picture that they have on this, on the stoop in front of the house is a very 1980s picture. It's like in a farmhouse and it looks very much of the eighties or, you know, maybe the nineties, who knows? I think, uh, you know, there's something general about that. Hey, what do you think about, right, We talked a little bit about Rucker Hauer. I just want to kind of put some attention on him because I think, you know, he doesn't have a tremendous amount of screen time. Uh, obviously we're spending most of the movie with Harrison Ford, but Rucker Hauer in this movie. I think this is a, one of his defining roles. I mean, this movie, uh, he plays this character so interestingly and I, and I love, they brought a lot of himself to it. Uh, but like whether it's kissing Tyrell or having, you know, this speech at the end, which we talked about, he says he improvised and he has this dove that he releases in the air. And is that dove real? Is that dove not real? You know, I, it's, um, I don't know. I'm just so, I, I just want to just kind of shine a light on him for a second.
3: Yeah, I mean, Rucker Heller, he's my favorite character in the film. Like, every time he's on screen, I find myself loving this film. Him and Daryl Hannah, every time they're together. Like, the scene when he kisses the tongue back in her mouth breaks mm. my heart. Like, I adore how how vivid they are. And when, you, when Sebastian, um, the inventor, is looking at them, and you just see in his eyes that he's jealous, that he wishes he could be as cool and as special and as passionate about them. I mean, Rucker Howard, he just, his animal howl is the way he just feels connected to biology. Like, you feel the cells in his body, like, pumping and working and chasing him around. That, I mean, I think the chase scene goes on so long, but it is at least better than what they wanted in the script, which was, like, a huge just fight scene. Like, that, you can't have a fight scene with that Nexus 6. There's no fight, you know? He wins. Yes. The chase, his playfulness in the chase is so much better. You know, Rucker Howard well, actually has a memoir that's really good. If people want to read it, I was reading a little bit of it before this episode, and he talks uh-huh. so much about about working on this, um, working on the film. One of the things he said, like he hated the original happy ending, you know, which oh, was really? the, a thing that they tacked onto the film at the very end. Here, I actually pulled a clip of the original happy ending, and this, by the way, takes place like right after uh, Deckard and Rachel get into the elevator. Next shot is them, like car commercial, driving down this beautiful, sunlit mountain road.
6: Gaff had been there and let her live. Four years, he figured. He was wrong. Tyrell had told me Rachel was special. No termination date. I didn't know how long we'd have together. Who does?
0: And, and for those of you who can't see it, that is a footage from The Shining.
3: Do you wanna know how Rucker Howard thought about that ending? This is what he called it. He said basically it's a guy that flies off with his blow up doll, gives you a thumbs up and says, Hey, life's short. (laughs)
0: Yeah. It's a very like 1980s, like you're right. That's such a funny way of looking at it. I mean, when you look at that, by the way, you couldn't see it there. Um, that is footage from the shining, not the interior of the car footage, but it's the exterior footage that they never use in the shining. Uh, and they even take away the uh, Vangelis score, which we haven't talked about there. I mean, the Vangelis score also adds a, a weight to this film, but it it's like kind of, um, it's almost like a cheap network version of noir music it's so uh it's just it's terrible I mean it really when you hear it like that it, it really is awful
3: <laughs> yeah I mean I like a lot of the Vangelis score the way that you hear it kind of soaring and falling that's what I always picture when I listen to it like it feels like cars going up and down and like hopes going up and down I went um so have you ever heard any of Vangelis's early stuff from like the 60s because
0: uh, no I didn't even know that there was early stuff. I thought this is early stuff.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's early in his movie career. You know, like just the year before, he had won, I think, a Golden Globe for *Chariots of Fire*. You know, mm-hmm. but Vangelis—he was a musician from Greece who formed a band in that was like a psychedelic rock band in the '60s. Their name oh, is wow. *A Aphrodite's Child*, and I want to play a little bit of this song because, to me, it feels like a precursor to the Roy Batty speech. If you can hear what he's saying, he's saying rain and tears are basically the same. I mean, that is Roy Batty's final speech. I wonder wow. if maybe like Rucker has was together? jamming out. Yeah, was he jamming out being like, this Vangelis guy, let me listen to some of his music, or is it just a complete coincidence?
0: Uh, I don't know. I love that. Maybe it's a coincidence, but maybe it's meant to be. You know, you said something I want to touch on a couple of times, and I, I feel like now is a good time to talk about it as we're talking about The Replicants. That you were connected to these characters, you were connected to Ruckerhauer and Daryl Hanna. and uh, and I'm even connected to Kowalski. You know, he's um, isn't that a conscious choice to make the inhuman people the most human people, and and to kind of, I don't know. I I, I think you know we were talking about like these characters lack humanity, but like I am connected to their journey. I feel like they are us. Like they are, you know. We I think. This movie does something different, where it's like, in general, you think, "Oh, I am the Harrison Ford character," but we are really the other characters trying to find life and trying to live longer and trying to make something of our time and and trying to be happy. You know, it's like, um, I think that that's what's so s- appealing to Decker when he meets uh, when he meets uh, Sean Young's character. Like, and I don't know if you qualify that as a rape scene where he kind of forces her to kiss him, but I think he's attracted to that too. This idea like they, what this is the them that they left behind. I mean, and that that's a pretty powerful statement that, you know, in a way like this is the purity of who we are as humans that get so pumped down by like our life and trauma.
3: I mean, there is something very cool that they do in the sound mixing that underscores that point. Cause half of me is like, you don't hear any of the actors saying Ridley Scott really directed me to be so human. It, it, I can't tell like how much to ascribe to them or to him, but you mm. can definitely ascribe to, to Ridley Scott things like this. That you know, when you listen to the Leon test, for example, where Leon Kowalski, who, by the way, I like imagining as a descendant of Stanley Kowalski, like mm. he has the, the like, oh, I'm a an angry working man DNA um, kind of thing. We have two Kowalskis in a row, which I find so fun. But as he's getting this very first opening um, interview to see whether or not he's a human, you hear in the score, you hear right underneath this interview, um, a, ho- a heartbeat. Like, you hear what I think is Leon's heartbeat.
4: Do you make up these questions, Mr.
6: Holden? Do they write them down for you? The tortoise lays on its back, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over. But it can't, not without your help. But you're not helping.
5: What do you mean, I'm not helping? I mean, you're not
7: helping Why is that, Leon?
6: They're just questions, Leon. In answer to your query, they're written down for me. It's a test designed to provoke an emotional response. Shall we continue?
3: And you, when you listen to the movie, oh, you hear wow. that heartbeat come up one more time. The next time you hear the heartbeat is during the chase scene with Zora. And as he's chasing Zora through the streets, and there are those beautiful, I mean, everything that they can do in that scene to have light reflect on another sub, another surface is just there. But as Harrison Ford shoots a woman in the back and she falls down to the ground, you hear that pulse again, and then it stops when she's dead. And so I think just subconsciously, the movie is telling you these are the only people whose pulses really matter, who we care about them being alive.
1: I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Farbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, Listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now.
3: Well, we have a special guest on this show coming up who we've actually had on this show before. I'll give you three seconds to see if you can guess who it is. Three, two, one. It is screenwriter David Peoples. We had him on the show before uh, for Unforgiven. He wrote that. He also, of course, worked on the Blade Runner script, and we are so glad to have you back to talk about Blade Runner. David, hello. I'm so interested in picturing you you know, writing the script and trying to imagine the future. I mean, wh- what were you using to imagine
5: 2019? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm going to give you the answer you want. I, I didn't have a lot to do with that. I was brought on to do a rewrite of Hampton Fancher's very excellent adaptation of Philip K. Dick's book, a book I never read, so I was working from Hampton Fancher's script, and uh, that's all I was doing. I wasn't creating or imagining the future as Philip K. Dick, Hampton Fancher, and Ridley Scott did. I was a screenwriter,
0: And when you were brought on, were you brought on with an idea like that they wanted to maybe make it a little bit more commercial or was it like, what were you brought on to kind of accomplish in that rewrite?
5: Over the years I've, I've, I've heard uh, an interview where I was considered a kind of a commercial action kind of writer, uh, whereas Hampton was more cerebral and, uh, and, and more visionary actually. And, uh, So I think they brought me on for that. Uh, Over the years, I've gradually realized just how extraordinary a break this was for me, because uh, for Ridley Scott to bring in an unknown, uncredited writer on this big picture that had a big budget was kind of an kind of an unheard of stroke of good fortune for me.
3: What was your working partnership like creatively, you and Ridley? (laughs) <laughs>
5: well uh, Ridley uh, uh, let's see uh, he is a very imaginative guy and uh, uh, I would just try and keep up with him when I could I remember we had early on a story conference with uh, Ridley and me and Michael Dealy and Kate Haber and uh, Ivor Powell another producer on the show and And I I was trying to understand what story changes were involved. And Ridley started (laughs) talking about the uh, uh, toys in uh, Sebastian's apartment. And Ridley started imitating these little animals and spinning bow ties and stuff. And I, I was just, I guess my mouth was hanging open and my eyes were big. And we weren't getting anywhere on the story, but I was hearing the most extraordinary visual things. And uh, Michael Dealey looked over at me sympathetically when we took a little break and said, well, welcome aboard, something like that. So Ridley (laughs) is an extraordinary man with all sorts of ideas and visions and uh, um, was hard keeping up with him.
0: Well, we were talking about that idea that the movie is, it's so lived in, like everything seems so thought out. And as a writer too, like, you know, the audience is Seeing all that in the background, but you have to kind of keep the weight of the ball moving forward at a certain extent as well. And was it interesting for you to see how the studio changed the film and and how the film has changed over time? I mean, from the director's cut, the original cut, the final cut, all of these different cuts. Uh, what you know, what yeah, what was your reaction to that when you saw the first version of it, the uh, the voiceover version? <laughs>
5: Okay, well, before I do that, I just want to address something you said about the lived-in. Yeah. Uh, I remember one day, Ridley wanted some pages from me, and so I went over to the set. Uh, It was Deckard's apartment, and uh, I had to wait until they finished shooting to give Ridley the pages, and then I gave him the pages, and the lights were all turned off and everything. And I'm sitting there in Deckard's apartment and it felt like a lived in apartment. It did not feel like a set would feel. I mean, I, I oh, knew okay. it right then, even though I didn't have a lot of experience in that every detail was so rendered. Everything was so real and lived in that it felt like somebody lived there. Ridley was, uh, uh into detail in ways that few can imagine. Uh, as far as the the other question you asked about it developing, and this, the studio didn't have much to say about it. That wasn't the issue. The issue was uh, Hampton had a very beautiful voiceover when, uh, on the draft that I first read. I mean, the script was magnificent. Hampton was a brilliant writer. And I did make some changes and additions to the voiceover that I thought were good. So I thought uh, that the combined voiceover was pretty good. But I I suggested that they not leave it on the script for the shoot because you want the script to work without the voiceover. It was not intended to be a crutch. It was intended intended to be like mood music. And so the story wouldn't depend on the voiceover, but the voiceover would add, as music does, and and had a subtext and a subplot and everything, but it was a separate thing. Well, in the course of shooting the picture, story problems developed. So once the picture was shot, uh, it was now necessary to make the voiceover do some work it wasn't intended to do, and that became a big struggle. And um, uh, th- they brought in me separately, and they brought in Hampton separately, and then after Ridley you probably know Ridley was fired off the picture for a while Yeah. and at that point they brought in somebody else I think the producers brought him in and so on when the uh, first screenings happened and Hampton and I went to see it uh, I was cringing some of the voiceover was what was originally in it and so on but I was cringing at a lot of the voiceover but I thought well Hampton wrote that because he had to, that was his job, and they told him to write it and Hampton apparently was thinking the same thing about me, <laughs> <laughs> so we were both we like each other so much, I certainly wasn 't going to say anything critical of Hampton, and I know as a screenwriter, he had to do what he had to do, and he was feeling the same way about me. only later did we learn that other people had been involved in some of the most cringeworthy stuff was not our work. Um, so anyway, because because there were problems where people had to explain the story rather than the story being obvious and 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 voice over has to be pretty oblique or it sounds like a lecture and uh anyway, it's a long story, but we struggled with it and uh, I'm glad Ridley took most of it off ultimately. Although if he'd shot either Hampton's original um voiceover or my original voiceover they were both very good they just didn't solve some problems that came about during production
3: that's so interesting I mean I mean I wonder like yeah when you have worked on a movie like this that has taken on so many forms when you watch it like what are the scenes and the moments that when you see this movie you're like that feels like me right there on that screen I'm so proud that that's in here
5: Oh, well, that business of uh, Batty up on the roof and and talking about what he remembers off the shoulder of Orion and stuff, I'm very proud of that. That was some of my work. Um, But I do want to say, and and I'm not, uh, this isn't a case of modesty. I'm proud of the things I did on the picture and I helped some stuff and did some good character stuff. But I think the scene that makes the movie work, the fundamental scene that sets that movie up to work is a scene I didn't change a word of, and that's the Voight Kampf scene, very early in the movie. That Voight Kampf scene, that first interview, is what makes that movie work. It, it, it wasn't touched by me, and I don't think anybody else ever touched it. And it's just an absolute masterpiece, and it's it's really the the core of the movie.
0: The whole Voight Kampf test is such a fascinating. Uh, I just love that device throughout the film. It's such an interesting. Well, not way to not
5: having read Dick's book, I, I it it may come from Dick's book. I haven't read the book, so I don't know. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Wait, you've still made a point of never reading the book. Why is that?
5: Well, I asked Ridley when I came on the picture uh, if I should read the book, and he said, "No, don't bother," meaning that what he wanted of the book was already in Hampton's draft. And- Got it. So the book would was not some, somewhere I wanted to go, and uh, it, it was fine. I did what I was supposed to do, and uh, um, there we are. I served Ridley's wishes.
0: You know, I, I imagine that at a certain point, people start to look to you as being uh, someone who has a handle on this kind of worldview, because you also, uh, you know, you wrote uh, – soldier, you wrote 12 monkeys, uh, you know, like were you finding at a certain point that people wanted, uh, wanted this type of film from you a little bit?
5: I think the reason Ridley Scott hired me was because I was working with his brother, Tony, and Tony told him about me and some of the stuff I'd written. And one of the things I'd written was a very dark post-apocalyptic picture, which, is very much reflected in, in, uh, two of the uh, road warriors. I mean, they're very much like it. And, uh, so I think that's what attracted Ridley and Michael Dealey to me, that I would put some hard ass action or something into Blade Runner, which I didn't really do. (laughs) It was uh, what was in there that was violent was in there before me. And I worked more on character, but apart from that, um, Over the years, I have been offered some uh, 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 science fiction pictures, I guess. It's not what uh, Janet and I did, 12 Monkeys. It's not what either Janet or I consider particularly what we do. What we do is we tell stories, and the stories can take place in any circumstances. And if it's it's best told in the future... (laughs) Uh, right. we, we just recently worked on something that we thought was the future, but then along came the Trump administration and it's now the past, <laughs> but at any rate, we, uh, we just think about, trying try to look for a good story and then tell it in the way that it should be told. And, um, so it's not specific to science fiction, but we do get offered some jobs. I think people mistake my role in Blade Runner in, in the sense that I, the visionaries, that's a visionary film and the people who like it, like it for the visionary work, which is Philip K. Dick Hampton, Fancher and Ridley Scott. And I am capable of visionary stuff, but that isn't mine. I had nothing to do with the world of, of, uh, Blade Runner. My involvement with, uh, Blade Runner was lucky. And on some levels, the same way I was in luck with 12 monkeys, uh, which, yeah. frankly, I thought would be would be a long lasting picture like Blade Runner, but hasn't had the same legs that Blade Runner had. Um, although I guess the COVID virus is giving it a boost. Um,
3: yeah, I was just thinking you have a psych. You know, there's a psychic bit rippling through you about predicting the problems I, we're going to have to face.
0: Right. Although it did it did get a TV show, which is a really interesting thing. So many years later to have a 12 Monkeys TV show. I mean, it's still living along. I know for me and and my friends, it's a movie that is uh always kind of uh, very well regarded. And I have to say before we let you go, I just uh I love the movie Hero. We talk about Preston Sturges on this show a bunch and I always felt like that movie had such a fun energy to it as well. I was a big fan. What
5: a nice thing to say. I can't tell you how how much I like you for that because I like Hero a lot too. And I was thinking of, uh, I was, Preston Sturgis is an idol and I wasn't trying to copy Preston Sturgis, but I was hoping to get a little bit of his, or whatever is mojo in there, um, yeah, and uh, I'm glad you like the movie because I like it a lot too. And again, I was lucky with the director, Stephen Frears is just awesome. So, yeah. uh, that was that was uh, another happy experience.
3: This has been such a fun chat, Dave. I really appreciate you uh, taking a minute out of your day to come hang out with us and talk about Blade Runner. And I am so curious what you imagine the world 2060 is going to be like.
5: Well, we had we wrote a a, a, a uh, what would be a a, a long-form uh, TV thing that uh, was taking place in 2080. And so much of what happened in the 2040s and the 2060s had uh, already happened. And so what we're talking about, what we're seeing today would have been history. And uh, we had imagined a revolution in China in about 2030 or 2040, in which China became a democratic country that sort of fulfilled what the U.S. seems to be doing now. And in the meantime, the U.S. had had broken up into small nation states or whatever, and uh, with a lot of squabbling and so on. So at any rate, we had imagined a lot of things that are easier to imagine, uh, now than they were when we wrote it about five years ago. So, uh, uh, at any rate, it's not going anywhere. I don't think, um, people aren't ready for it yet, I guess, <laughs> or else yeah. they've already gone past it. It's very hard to tell <laughs> this, this time. Okay. Uh, any other questions or
0: no, I think we got it that thank you so well, much for spending time with us.
5: Listen, anybody who says something nice about Hero is in my good books. That's for sure. So,
0: <laughs> You know, Amy, there's so much here in this movie, and I know so many people have talked about it. And did you like the sequel? I mean, I, I don't want to get too much into no. it. But I just wanted to see. No. <laughs> no.
3: No. Not at all. I mean, my God, there are parts of that movie. I just wanted to watch on fast forward. I remember, like, he's walking through, what, that industrial um, factory full of tubes looking for a thing. And just from the way he walked and the way the music kicked in, I was like, I can get up and I can go get a popcorn right now. And I did. And I went and I got up and I got a popcorn and I came back and he was still walking around the damn factory. And I was like, I knew I wouldn't miss anything.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love it. And, uh, you know, I think there were elements of that film when I watch it for the first time that, you know, it's sort of like, It's this middle ground. And I do think that this movie actually does a good job of mixing pace and existing in moments. Like this movie is, the final cut is a little bit under two hours. And that's, you know, in this day and age uh, for this list, that's a a pretty exceptional feat, you know, but you still have this kind of ability to to live in a moment. I I feel like the, I, I do agree with you that the sequel, while I did enjoy it, it definitely, uh, I definitely said, like, well, let's make this pace a little bit slower. And uh, I don't know if that's always the best thing for a film. I, I think that this movie kind of splits the difference kind of perfectly. But we're talking about directing styles and directing choices. Just want to see what your take would be if uh, Martin Scorsese adapted it into a film, which is what was happening in 1969. Would you have liked the the Marty Scorsese version of it? I would have actually loved to see Martin Scorsese do something in, in the future, you know, I, I, I like what he brought to Hugo. Uh, I know that's not probably a popular opinion, but I like when he kind of breaks out of the world a little bit and does something uh, unique.
3: I'd be curious to see that. And You know, what's funny is even before uh, Scorsese was attached, another director that we've talked about on this list was interested and attached to the film, all because of a movie star that we've talked about. One of the first people who read a version of the script back when it was still called Dangerous Days was Gregory hmm. Peck. And Gregory Peck oh, was wow. like, this is fascinating. We absolutely have to make this into a movie. Like, this must be a movie. And so the very first director who got attached to it was our buddy Robert Mulligan, who did it to Kill a Mockingbird. Can you imagine that Ooh. version?
0: Ooh, that would have been really interesting. Wow, yeah. I mean, that would have been fantastic, I think. I wonder what it, if it would have aged weirdly. Like, would it look like, uh, you know, Plan 9 from Outer Space or something like that now? Like, you know, could we have captured something that this movie was made at the exact right time where a little bit before cgi uh you know comes into play in a big way but models are super popular uh but yet there's so much practicality to it i you know i think that that's something that dennis villeneuve did such a great job in uh kind of recapturing that not making it overly cgi it's you know i think that this movie really feel you want to feel that acid rain and those disgusting streets
3: Yeah, I mean, all my favorite parts of this are the detailed practical bits. I love the -the glow-in-the-dark umbrella handles. Those make me Mm. so happy every single time. I I
0: love a a clear raincoat. Uh, A clear raincoat is very exciting to me. I think that's a a good future look.
3: (laughs) I love, of course, all the 80s by 40s fashion. You know that I'm a big fan of 80s by 40s fashion. Um, And I love it when he goes to the nightclub, that, that hookah bar. And they have the mm. cool music on in the background, and everybody's got the netting over their heads. I mean yeah, I think that's just it. That's what I just keep coming down to, is I like watching this movie and, and to be inside of the movie. I like mm. picturing myself inside of this movie. But yeah. other than that, I, I, there's not a ton of there there. It's interesting to be. like you speaking of the Kowalski connection, I mean, Ridley Scott said that one of the reasons why he wanted Sean Young in this movie is because she reminded him of Vivian Lee. Which I do not see at all.
0: I I don't see it, but I, I when I heard Kowalski, I just perked up. I was like, "Ooh!" Uh, I got really. I was like, "Look at that!" <laughs> Look at, uh, um.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's just you know, I know it's not fair to judge a movie against what it could be, except I always want to do that, and mm-hmm. I just like to, in my imagination, take out the way the Sean Young character is created and replace it with an actual femme fatale. I mean, imagine if Rachel actually was like Barbara Stanwyck in Double, Double Indemnity. You know, what mm. if that character was interesting and complicated and you were curious about her? Because I just don't find her interesting. You know, I find her so blank and neutral and stony that I don't care about spending more time with her. And I guess that's why I've never cared about Harrison Ford loving her because I don't see why he would. Or I don't even see why he'd even choose to be around her. And so all of that subplot falls flat to me. And whereas I think if you had just cast that differently, or maybe, I don't want to put the blame on Sean Young, maybe like had some, told Sean Young to have fun with it, or to be intelligent and wise and naughty, to be as alive as the other replicants even. That character, I think this movie would have a life that it doesn't have.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think though the innocence is what they're going after. It's a femme fatale who is not, I mean, femme fatales obviously are, for lack of a better term, a damsel in distress, right? To a certain degree, that then turn to be a little bit evil. And what she is, is she's an innocent who is in distress. It's, you know, and that's what I think is his love relationship with her is problematic. and Not problematic, like, it just, it's bizarre. It's like, oh, you're connected to this a child almost. Like I don't know I don't know what what is engaging about her to him besides her innocence. And I don't know.
3: Yeah, because I don't even find her that innocent. I mean, she's like, I'd kill that wasp. Yeah? She's yeah, not, right, yeah. I'd I turn that person right. into the cops. Like she's not that nice.
0: I guess you're right. I don't know. Yeah, there I that relationship I do have a slight issue with. I mean, maybe she's just different and, and maybe he's just lonely. And maybe it's just, you know, the fact that it's someone, I don't know, safe. Yeah. I can't, quite put my, I, can't put my, I can't put my finger on it. It's an odd relationship that I haven't quite fully broken down. And I'm sure there's some paper online or some theory online why it is perfect that I, that I just haven't read. Um,
3: and can I just say one last thing about, <laughs> one <laughs> last quote with the movie, which is if you have this whole test, To test the emotionality to see whether or not they're replicants and it takes like a hundred questions like why do you have that well normally takes
0: 20 to no normally takes like 20 to 30 right fair
3: fair but why even do that when you could just put cold water on them or shine a flashlight in their eyes because
0: that's the whole idea amy you don't know who (laughs) these people are if you could do that it would take away all the fun i mean that's the 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 people who walk among (laughs) us like if if there were just try not to get
3: wet like the wicked witch of the east
0: I don't like it. I don't like it. I love, <laughs> I love that idea that they are, that they are indistinguishable from humans, you know? And, and, uh, you know, and that, that makes it a much more interesting, I think dilemma, like who are we surrounded by? What are, am I one? It's like the Truman show dilemma to a certain extent too. It's yeah. like, am I on TV? I and mean, that's playing, I mean, that is obviously a heightened version of reality television, but I think it's also asking like who we are, who's controlling us, what are the decisions that we're making? And I think that that's the thing I really respond to in this movie is, you know, who is controlling us? What are the rules that we're living by? You know, and I mean, these are I I love these questions. I don't know. I
3: think it's more interesting as who are we being lied to about? You know, we're Hmm. being lied to that they don't have emotions and we're being lied to that we do when none of the evidence in the film backs that up. And you have Edward James almost saying, you know, if you're not a cop, you're little people.
0: Right. Well, I mean, but General Ezra James almost, I think, also is playing a mind game. If you believe that he is not a replicant, Harrison Ford, then he's playing a mind game with Harrison Ford to make him think that he is. Like by, you know, I mean, he does make the unicorn. He does make this origami throughout the whole film that kind of is representative of, uh, you know, of this, what's going on in the film, you know, whether it's a little man with an erection, whether it's the unicorn, whether it's the the scared bunny, you know, it's like, I don't know. I feel like him putting that, that, that outside of his apartment, what do you think he meant by that? Is it just to play games with him? Or is it to say, like, uh, you know, if you get out of line, I'll be the one that takes you down. I don't know. What do you think?
3: I mean, I, I think it's just, I mean, I think there's an interpretation of it where he means that Rachel is a unicorn, that she's one of a kind or unique. And, and just to let you know that he knows where she is and that he's mm. been watching this whole time. I think that could be there because you also see unicorns in Sebastian, the robot in, engineer's room. So there are unicorns throughout this movie. It's not a thing that only belongs to Descartes and his mind. Right. I mean, I make, I make origami cranes every time I sit down and there's a napkin and my hands are fiddly. So I don't really? know if you ever dream about birds, but if you dream about birds, I'll leave them outside your door.
0: Oh boy. that. Now- yeah, I know I, I like that idea that she's a unicorn, but I think that there's nothing I don't feel like we get that from her. I don't I mean, we're told that, but I don't see it from her. I don't see that she has that life that our other replicants have that I'd be like, oh, she is a unicorn. But maybe, she maybe
3: I she's a unicorn because she's the only boring replicant. Congrats. <laughs> you fell for the only boring replicant. <laughs>
0: um well, Amy, now I know how you feel about this movie, but how was it received when it came out? You said it wasn't a box office hit, but was it beloved by critics?
3: It was polarizing. It's almost a lot like it is today. There are people who love it, and there were people who did not. I pulled, of course, a very uh, landmark Pauline kale review that I like a lot. Um, which i It's long, so I'm going to read just okay. chunks of it, but it's phenomenal. And I don't agree with all of her points in it at all, but she does nail a lot of stuff. She says, you know, a visionary sci-fi movie that has its own look cannot be ignored. It does have its place in film history, but... Although the impasto of decay is fascinating, what we see doesn't mean anything to us. We are not caught up in a pulpy suspense plot, and here we are, only 40 years from now, in a horrible electronic slum, and Blade Runner never asks, how did this happen? The picture treats this grimy, retrograde future as a given, as a foregone conclusion which we are not meant to question. And she says that makes this a suspenseless thriller, that it appears to be a victim of its own imaginative use of hardware and miniatures and mats. At some point, Scott and the others must have decided that the story was unimportant. Blade Runner doesn't engage you directly, it forces passivity on you. Some of the scenes seem to have six subtexts, but no text, and no context either. The people we're watching are so remote from us, they might be shadows of people who aren't there. And then she really doesn't like Rutger Hauer, which makes me sad, but she says Rutger Hauer is a shoe-in for this year's Klaus Kinski scenery-chewing award. He stalks through the movie like like an evil Aryan Superman and brings the wrong kind of intensity to the role. And a feat, self-aware irony so overscaled it's Wagnerian. And that she says his Gaga performance is an unconscious burlesque that apparently passes for great acting with the director. And then,
0: Well, I, I, say, look, I just want to put it in a little bit of context. She is watching the theatrical cut. We just have to put yeah. that in our minds. Okay, yes.
3: Yeah. And then um, she goes after the Vangelis score. Uh, she calls him Chariots for Hire and says that he gives the picture so much film noir overload that he fights Scott's imagery. He chomps on it, stomps on it, and drowns it. Blade Runner has nothing to give the audience, not even a second of sorrow for Sebastian. Sebastian is the one character she likes, um, she says, and, and she feels like his character gets really dismissed uh, cruelly. And she says, because of that, you know, this film just hasn't been thought out in human terms. If anybody comes around with a test to detect humanoids, maybe Ridley Scott and his associates should hide.
0: Well, I mean, look, I, I think that the, I think the movie that she saw was a lot more arch than the movie that we just rewatched. Right I, I feel like all that voiceover narration uh, leaves a lot of it takes away a lot of the ambiguity. I think it probably wrecks a little bit of Ruckerhauer's performance because like that scene at the end is so beautiful, and what you just played for me there is like it's so cluttered, you know it, um you know, and I, I look, it's a movie that I've really grown to love um you know, and i and I wonder i mean I, I guess I know where you're going, but you don't belong you don't believe this belongs on the list
3: nah, it's clinging on with its fingernails like I would much rather have you know, Brazil or Robocop on this list in a heartbeat. I think those if, films have an anger that I, that connects to me more.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you are putting me in that position, I mean, it's hard because Blade Runner is so iconic, visually so iconic. It, 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 it is of, uh, it, it surpasses a movie in the sense that it's like, I feel like so many movies have aped that and taken what it's done. Hmm. I'm gonna say I want it on. I'm gonna say I want it on the list for right now. I agree with you. Brazil should be on this list. I wonder if that falls into the whole European, uh, you know, British versus American version of this. And and RoboCop though is is pretty amazing. And RoboCop is probably a movie that never gets on this list because it's too damn violent. You know, it's an NC-17 film. You know, really. But maybe it's better at the point it's trying to make. I don't know. It's maybe maybe or maybe.
3: Or maybe we have that fight about putting foreign films on the list, but we do it for Metropolis. And we're like, let's just get Uh, Metropolis on here. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I do want to say, every time I read a Pauline Kale review that bashes um, one of what I find to be the sacred cows of cinema that we do i have to love uh people are like pauline kill how is she so wrong how is she such an idiot uh so i wanted to pull two other critics who also didn't like this film
7: about halfway through blade runner i realized i stopped caring about the people in the movie i was interested mostly in the special effects it's a great movie to look at but a hard one to care about i didn't appreciate the predictable story the standard characters the cliffhanging cliches but I do think the special effects make Blade Runner worth going to see.
4: I agree with part of your review. Predictable, cliches. <laughs> what about the special effects? Dazzling for the first 20 minutes and then what? I mean, this story goes no place as far as I'm concerned. I invested a lot of energy in this movie watching it because it was so striking looking. And Harrison Ford is a, an attractive actor and he does care, take us through any adventure that he's in. But I'm sitting there halfway through the picture saying where is this going and when it's over I think I've wasted my time. I, I admire the special effects, but Roger, there are a lot of people in, in this country and in England who can do this quality of special effects, so I don't... There think are not a lot of people who can well do half What I'm saying is that they, they in and of themselves, mm-hmm. that or that in and of themselves, doesn't uh, make it a, a film well, worth going to see. I'm trying to get Blade Runner a pretty specific
7: review. I didn't believe in the story, I didn't care about the characters, Perfect. on the other hand, to look at the film, the, the set decoration, the design, the visual yeah, conception done, of this it, it was Los done, Angeles didn't get tired for me in 20 okay, minutes. Okay. I felt as if I were being shown a world I hadn't seen
4: before. It was done by Ridley Scott, who made a similarly attractive-looking film, an alien, but at least they had a conventional pull-ahead, uh, pull-you-through-the-picture story there, a horror film. This film, I say, I think is a waste of time. Pretty
0: to look at, but a waste of time.
3: Mm-hmm. Cisco and Ebert did not hold back.
0: I wonder if they would change the review if they saw the final cut.
3: Oh, that's interesting. I didn't look to see if Roger Ebert ever reviewed it, which was a thing he uh, liked to do frequently. Oh, you know what? <laughs> I have found a review, and he re-reviewed it in 2007, called it Great Scott, and gave it four stars. So wow. he changed his mind.
0: Ah, you see, he changed his mind. Maybe there is something about this movie being presented the way it was supposed to be. Uh, is you know, It's a different way of looking at films. I mean, we very rarely have that.
3: Yeah, I mean, what he seems to say in this review is, I've never quite embraced Blade Runner, admiring it at arm's length, but now it is time to cave in and admit it to the canon. He almost seems like he's admitting it in just because he admires the films that came after it. The legacy, he says, of it, inspiring films about global corporations and environmental decay and overcrowding. So he says because of that, we get Dark City, Total Recall, Brazil, 12 Monkeys, Gattaca, and he likes it for the progeny, I think, as much as the film itself.
0: Interesting. Now, I guess there's one question left on the the docket. Is there a Simpsons?
3: There is. There are a lot of quiet visual jokes about um, Blade Runner and the Simpsons that did not pull at all for a podcast. So, what I ended up pulling is from an episode called Simpson Rama. And this is when Bender from Futurama comes to Springfield to kill Homer Simpson and in the process proving that robots really are human. And here I want you to listen close as he goes to Mo's Tavern and Mo calls him a name
6: Hey, Hibachi Head, how are you going to pay for that? Ah! Let me just transfer some, uh, electronic hypercredits into your register here.
5: Ding-a-ding-ding-ding-ding-ding-ding. Ooh, and, uh, another round
6: for my friend. Ding-a-ding-ding-ding-ding. Yeah! Hey, this Blade Rummy is all right. He's a big spender, plus he fixed the jukebox. I think they had a thing going.
7: Oh, baby, what you done to
6: me? I hate it when they get quiet. Listen, uh. I know you're a robot and incapable of emotion. (laughs) It's true. I'm empty inside. (laughs) Uh, look, I just want to ask, can we be friends? You're the only guy I know with less hair than me.
5: Sure, that's why I came
0: to your time. For all you know. For all we know.
3: (laughs) I just like picturing that as Roy Batty's speech at the end.
0: Yeah, I (laughs) like... well, I mean, it's been so much fun talking to you about Blade Runner. I love kind of talking about the, the bigger themes of this movie. And also, I think like a lot of films on this list, it leads the way for better films and better conversations and, and taking an idea and executing it in a more interesting way or you know in a more commercial way to a certain extent. And I think that's important too.
3: Yeah, very, 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 very true. Very true. I mean, I don't know, maybe we could do some horse trading. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I was like, Blade Runner walked so we can run with Gattaca.
3: <laughs> Maybe we'll do some horse trading. We'll take this right. off. We'll give Alien or Thelma and Louise a shot. And then we'll put on like a, a different dystopian movie.
0: By the way, look, if you're saying that Paul Verhoeven would be represented on the best films of all time, I'm going to I'm going to get behind that, you know, and and I do think that Ridley Scott's made really interesting films. Um I want to see what the makeup of the list is. You know, I think also the fact that we don't really have a dystopian sci-fi film, you know, on this list is interesting. You know, it's sort of like let's, you know, I I want to expand that list to show different genres as well. I think maybe there's something about this film just just being different that's exciting to me. It's like sunshine. It just feels like oh, it's otherworldly. It's you know, it just feels it just it gets us out of sort of the the staid AFI list of you know, reality, which I like. That's
3: fair. That's fair. Fair point. Fair point.
0: All right, Amy, our movie next week is a a classic Western, a film that I watched as a child. It's called Shane. Uh, I kind of describe it as old yeller, but for cowboys. But, you know, how do you feel about the name Shane? Is that a real good cowboy name?
3: Well, I'm trying to think if I'd be intimidated by a Shane. I think I might be more intimidated by a cowboy named Old Yeller.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, look, yeah, right. I mean, but think about the classic cowboy names that we have like Josie Wales, Haas, Butch <laughs> Cassidy, Brett Maverick, Rooster Cogburn. Shane does not belong here. We need to rename Shane. Uh, and we want you to give us a better name for Shane. I mean, if this is going to be a classic Western, give us a classic Western name. Give us a call at 747 666 5824 with your name improvement for shane again think cowboy think big we we have so much to do here and i want to make sure you know will Kane is even a better name will Kane from high noon we We need need something
3: iconic iconic give us an iconic cowboy name
0: all right so uh, again the number to call is 747-666-5824 and we'll see you next week for shane